Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Elul Learning Series. This is part two of a four-part series that um, I'm teaching as part of Rabbi Schatz's wonderful collection of Elul-appropriate uh, experiences and learning opportunities for the Bethlehem community, which we're also delighted to share with anyone who happens to be interested. Um, last week, we, we we lingered a bit on an introduction to Maimonides, the Rambam, and his Mishneh Torah on his massive work of of halachic specificity and how, in some ways, the laws of Shuvah, the laws of repentance, do and do not fit into that. Right? Most of the book is really focused on on on, on, on ritual and ethical and, 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 and business approach details about how you actually live out your halachic life. And Hilcho Tshuva is in a, is in a section of, uh, of the Mishnah Torah, his major work on halacha, that is more in the realm of ideas, foundational notions of what it means to be a Jew. And right before he jumps into uh, the book of Zmanim, the book of times in which he talks about Shabbat and holidays, he puts in this Hilcho Tshuva. Um, and we discussed the fact that the fact that the Rambam, who was all about order and all, all about putting things in the right order, the fact that he does not include the laws of tshuva in his laws of high holidays, yamim noraim, reminds us that he believed, as we should believe, that this is not a seasonal obligation. This is a daily obligation. Uh, we might highlight our focus on it during these weeks and months, and we do. But if we're not thinking about it in, in Kislev and in Shvat and in Adar, and we're getting something wrong about the Jewish condition. And he also puts it in the introductory preface book to suggest this is something foundational about what it means to live as a Jew. So we spent about 20 or 25 minutes on that. And then we started to look at the first uh, halacha of the book. And that's where we're going to pick off. So let me share my screen. And we'll see how far we get today. Okay. Um, so we started reading the first paragraph of the first chapter of the of of Hilcho Shuvah, right so that's what we're looking at right now and just to give us a little bit of um momentum i'll read through quickly the piece that we did last week and then we'll push forward this is how he begins his treatise on repentance any commandment of torah whether it's a positive obligation a thou shalt or a thou shalt not if you did any single one of them Right, not ranked. Doesn't matter if it's the Ten Commandments or if it's the mixture of wool and linen in your clothing. Bain bezadon, bain bishkaga. Whether you do it willfully or negligently, and we discussed that negligently could be two different categories. Either you didn't know this act was prohibited. Had you known, you wouldn't have done it. Or you knew that this thing was prohibited, but you didn't realize that this was a version of that thing. Right? You knew eating treif was not permissible. You just didn't think this was treif which is different than, oh, I didn't know that swordfish, for instance, isn't kosher, whether you did it intentionally or not intentionally. When the person comes to do tshuva, the yashuv, the Rambam in beautiful Hebrew, is taking the noun tshuva and hinting at where the verb comes from. Why is it called tshuva return? Because when you return, from your sin, you have to give a confessional. Hitvadot means to, it's interesting, it's a, it's a reflexive verb. It's a hit pael verb. So it's doing something to oneself, even though the action is really 
just an active notion of offering a confession, but it's in the grammatical form that suggests it's a process that you're doing internal to yourself. You make a confession with Neha El Barahu in front of the Holy Blessed One. Shedna Amar has a textual source from the book of Bamidbar Numbers, Ish O Isha Ki Asu, etc. Any man or woman who does, and then the verse continues, any of the uh, sins that are listed in the Torah, that is the end of the verse. It's said dispositively. They will indeed make a confession for all of the sins that they did. That's what a confessional of speech is. Um, and the vidui itself is a positive commandment. Notice his language. He's not just saying that if you violated a commandment, you have to do restitution. He's not just saying that if you did something you shouldn't have done, you have to show remorse for it. You actually have an opportunity in that moment and an obligation to do a mitzvah itself. And the mitzvah itself is the vidui of confession. Right? So don't think that tshuva is just making flat what you had made concave with your sin. Right? It's also about doing something convex. It's actually taking the next opportunity to do a mitzvah. And what's the mitzvah? The mitzvah is of a, a confessional in front of God for what you did wrong. Okay? That's an interesting way of thinking about things, that we're not, just, we're not just trying to make the situation as it once was and make it better because of our, our, our failures. And right? imagine if we thought of this colloquially and relationally, that we're actually seeing the next moment in front of us as we confront the wrong that we did as not just restitution, but a positive obligation in and of itself. That's how Maimonides thinks of it. I see something in the chat, so I'm going to see. Very good, right. So what Joanna noted is that the verb lehit palel, which we don't translate into Hebrew as a reflexive verb, it's built as a reflexive verb. It literally means to judge oneself. Pei lamed labim means to judge. So we don't think of that. When you go to pray mincha, are you really thinking of it as judging yourself? In terms of what the root means, yes, it's a process of self-investigation so that you emerge at the end of that process, perhaps with, uh, as a loftier human being. And so lehid vadot, a confessional, is a similar kind of um, internal process. Okay, that's as far as we got last week. Let's continue with the text. Ketzad mitvadin, the Rambam says, you're reading a halachic book. You're not reading a philosophical treatise. So you, reader, want to know, how do you do it, right? How do you make tea on Shabbat? How do you, um, you know, kosher a spoon for Pesach? How do you do the mitzvah that I just told you you need to do? Omer, you say, Anna Hashem. Oh, I plead you, oh God. Anna is a great Hebrew word. Sometimes in the Bible, it comes out just as na. Those in my Rashi class know that we spend a long time trying to translate that untranslatable world word. It's almost like a tone of voice. It's like a, uh, it's, it's, it's a plea. It's a, a plaintive, modest, hopefully not put on for show plea. And it's different than please, right? We know that the word please in English is made from the word plea, but it doesn't always work out that way when we actually use it, right? Ana Hashem, oh Lord, chatati, I made a chait, I did a sin. Aviti, we're going to now get some um, synonyms. I did a transgression, an avon. Pashati, I was sinful, or I, I, uh, you could even say that I, I, was, I was criminal. I did something I ought not to have done. Lefanecha, in front of you. Va'asiti kach kach, and I did this and that. What do you think Rambam means technically 
What's, what, 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 if you're reading this as a guide and you come to the words and it says, I sinned, I transgressed, I was criminal, and I did kach v'kach, this and that, what do you think he means we're supposed to do in that moment in the confessional, Taibel? Um, it just seems to me that maybe one are the ones that I actually know that I did, and the other are the ones that, because it said before, even if I didn't intend to, the ones I haven't discovered yet. The Rambam says, and I would say, if you do not say out loud what you did, it's not an apology. It's not a confessional. Those of us who have children, how many times have we told our children, the word sorry means nothing. It's a good start. What are you sorry for? Right? It's not an interrogation. You're so- I'm, so- I'm sorry that your feelings were hurt. Well, that's not a sin. No. What are you sorry that you did? That is the core notion of a Jewish approach, and I would say a relational approach to an apology. So when he says, he doesn't mean you should say out loud, yeah, I did this and that. It's this, you say out loud, the only one listening is you and God, the very things that you did wrong, right? You might've heard me over the years say, Yom Kippur, you should, you should say the whole list because it's, it's proper to give a certain amount of veneration of the liturgy that we've inherited. But if you only say the beautifully acrostic alphabetical al Yom Kippur, from my perspective, you've, you, you've missed out. You've, you've swung and you've missed again. And I've, I've shared this from the Bima that my general approach to the al the liturgy of the al Yom Kippur, is that the first time I confront it on Kol Nidre, you also confront it, by the way, at the Mincha before Yom Kippur. But the first time I confront it on Kol Nidre, I say the full list as a litany. And every time after you confront it, you confront it eight or nine times on Yom Kippur, what I do is I start saying it. And when I get to a sin in the list that's symbolic and somewhat representative of the types of things that a Jew might do wrong, when I get one that sticks in my craw, that I know that I've slipped on, that I know I have to do tshuva for, I stop the litany and I just confess on that one to myself out loud. I say the words and to the Holy one. Does that mean that I'll never stumble again? No, because I'm a flawed person, but I don't let the list that the rabbis wrote 15 to 1800 years ago, do my work for me. I listen to the Rambam and says, I did this and that, and you have to fill in the this and that, whether you're saying that to a person or you're saying it to God and yourself. If you don't say it, I don't think that, you're anywhere close to tshuva. Now he has two interesting verbs. The hare and behold, after you say, I raised my voice when I shouldn't have. I wasn't as careful at that outing when it, came, when it comes to kashrut. I didn't pray as often as I should, etc. I was, I was, uh, I, I, I had an unethical business dealing. The hare nichamti uvoshti. We could spend the next five hours just in those two verbs. Nun chet mem. It's a great Hebrew verb. I once did a class on it for our joint Tisha B'Av session with B'nai David. And you know that I like, I like verbs and you, I like roots. You might know the root, l'nachem, meaning to comfort, right? Hamakom yinachem etchem, may the Holy One comfort you. Nechama is comfort. Doesn't really make sense here. Arei nichamti, I have comforted? Doesn't make sense. L'nachem also means to regret. And I think there's an interesting etymological connection between regret and comfort. We get that um, very early on in the book of Genesis. God regretted having made humanity. 
because when he saw what humanity was doing, he basically said the world would have been better without it, right? And the word and Noah, right? Noah in English is Noah in Hebrew, is built both from the root nach or nacha, rest, and um, and nachem. So the, the mem comes off, but basically God saying that because I regret um, the, the yuckiness of the human society I built, here comes Noah who will bring me comfort from um, from all the wretchedness that humanity represents because I have hope in him. So when the Rambam uses this verb very intentionally, he's bringing us back to the, the, the yuckiness of the generation before the flood that warranted the world being destroyed. And he's saying that you, the sinner, has to say, Nihamti, I regret this. And maybe the association is that I, I'm going to try to bring comfort to the world now that I realized what wrong I did. I think it's a double entendre. Uvoshti, bet shinhe. Anyone want to give a guess? I guess it's already, I've translated on the left. Um, um, if those who haven't looked into the English, what is what, what root do you see in boshti? Anyone? Like busha. Busha, right. What does busha mean, Denise? Embarrassed. Right. right. So busha, you know, in modern Hebrew, ani mit bayesh, another wonderful, interesting, reflexive verb. To mit bayesh, it's, it's how you say you're embarrassed, but it's a, it's, I, I, I have disgraced myself, is really what it means. Right? I have turned, I have allowed myself to be a busha. Um, in, in biblical Hebrew, Sometimes the root is bet vav shin. Sometimes it's bet shin shin. In modern psychological um, um, uh, discourse, we would say that shame is not a very helpful emotion. Right? Uh, shame can lead to self-hatred and self-loathing. That's probably overdoing it. But in, in halachic and, and Maimonidean thinking, it's critical, right? And this goes into that problem we always have as to what words mean and what they don't mean and how they mean very different things in different settings, right? You, you don't want to allow yourself to look in the mirror and experience shame at who you are. But if you don't have some shame or some regret or some embarrassment, don't allow the embarrassment to bubble up for what you did. That's beyond regret. Nihamti is, I wish I hadn't done it. Boshti is, I don't like myself for having done it. The Rambam says that is a critical step to getting to what we're going to get to in the next halacha, which I'll give you a little, you know, uh, teaser, chuvag uh, mura, full repentance, is your being in the same situation that you had been in the first time you sinned, and not sinning this time. That's not going to come just from regret. It's all going to it's all it's going to come from a proper dose of self critique and self loathing that keep biblical and mishneh Hebrew would call busha. You have to allow yourself to see yourself as enough of, of a busha that you're going to change. Otherwise, the moment of, 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 of half tshuva will pass, and then you'll go on with your life, and you'll probably do it again next time. So, nichamti uvoshti b'maasai, I regret and shame for what I did, uleolam eni chozer ledavarzeh. This is all part of your out loud confession. You don't just think it. It's very easy to think, I will never sin again. It's different to say, I will never do this sin again. I might do others. I never will. It's interesting how significant in the, in the human brain, human psychology, that kind of, um, of confessional, um, how powerful it can be. I'm going to give you a very mundane example. Uh, I think Larry and I, I think the only ones on this, um, 
on this uh, Zoom who are part of a wonderful nerdy uh, trivia league uh, where we answer six hard trivia questions a day. And it's all in the honor system because you're up against another opponent and you have to rank you know, how much each question is worth based on what your opponent, uh, how well they are in, in that category. And, bef- and you know, in the age of Google, there's no such thing as trivia if you just want to Google it. Before you submit every day, you have to check a box that says, I have not cheated today. Now, most of us are not cheaters, um, but it's actually very hard to not cheat when no one's looking, right? Particularly if, if you know, whether something matters, it doesn't matter. The, the inventor of this game just believe that if you, if, if you make the person not once when they join the league, but every single day check the box, I have not cheated, I have not cheated, I have not cheated, I have not cheated, that's going to be a, do a pretty good job of, 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 of ensuring that there's no cheating happening in the system. Because if there is, there's no fun in it, right? So the Rambam says, you've got to say out loud, not that I, I'll strive to do better, God. I, I, I owe you my contrition, God. I will never, I don't know why this example comes to mind, right? I will never walk away from a convenience store having been given the wrong change and not gone back in and make sure that the transaction was purely ethical. I'll never do it again. I'll be tempted. I'll never do it again. Or whatever it is that is in the individual confessional. This is the essence of your confession. Anyone who does more in the confession, those of you who hear v'chol ha'marbeh, does that evoke anything for anyone? That, that two-word Hebrew phrase, v'chol ha'marbeh, and then a dot, 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 hareze mishubach. I'll finish the line and then tell me if anyone recognizes it. Anyone who does more than that in your self-confessional, umma'arich be'inyan, and goes on. The more detailed, the better. Hareze mishubach, that is praiseworthy. Anyone uh, find that evocative of another piece of Hebrew text? Joanna? Right. And remember what I said last week, that the Rambam is intentionally writing the Mishnah Torah to be evocative and as homage to Mishnaic Hebrew. The Haggadah is essentially Mishnaic um, uh, text. In fact, in the 10th chapter of Masech HaPsachim in the Mishnah, you have the basic building blocks of the Haggadah gets expanded. And so he writes this almost a echo of a particular sentence in the Mishnah. Anyone who does more, like, that's the minimum. I did this and this, and you name it. I regret it, and I'm embarrassed. I'll never do it again. You can check off the box. I have fulfilled my obligation to be dewey. Yeah, well, fine. But anyone who does more than that is praiseworthy. And what I think what he means by praiseworthy is not just like, go you, you get a medal. It's going to be a more successful and effective shuva if you express more detail, right? And again, going back to how we train students or children, I try to train my children, right? That your instinct is to shy away from what you've done wrong, right? You get your hand caught in the cookie jar and you just want to run away from it, right? Or the worst you want, or, or, or if you can eke out a word, you say, I'm sorry. Right? But I try to tell my children and my students, say the longest version of the confessional that you can, not to self-flagellate, but to say, I'm sorry, that when you were sleeping last night and I knew I should have been in bed, I snuck down into the living room and I turned on the TV. The reason why you say it that way, you tell someone, is so that is, because, is for the same reason the Rambam says it here. The more specificity you put into the confessional, the more it's going to anchor in your consciousness that that's something you ought not do again. By the way, I think the same is true with praise, right? Um, 
I, I remember learning this wisdom at some point that as a teacher um, or as a mentor, the, the, what you want to say is well done, beautiful picture, right? That was a great sermon. If you ever want to praise my sermon, you don't have to. Don't ever tell me it was a great sermon. I don't need to hear that. Right? I mean, because it's, it's not that you don't mean it, but it's not helpful to me, right? Say, Rabbi, when you, when you connected that text to this idea, it made me think differently about such and such. That's helpful praise, right? Or when you say to an eight-year-old, what a beautiful picture. That's, that's like, that, that kind of praise will pass. Right? What I've learned and try to teach in, in, in the way I think about things is you say to a, a kid, right? Look how yellow that sun is. When you drew the picture of that field, I, could, I felt like I was there. The more specific the praise you give, the more impact it's going to have on the person you're praising. And they're going to trust it as opposed to saying, well, they always say it was a great sermon or it's a great picture. And the more specific you are with your own confessional, the more likely it's actually going to sink into your own constitution. Looking at the chats. Um, yes, sorry about that. Uh, I'll give you the link to the um, Google Doc, but you can also just follow along with me. Hold on. It should be there and it should be accessible if you open it up. Okay. Um, comments, questions before we move on to the last section of, we're still on the first halacha of Hilchot Shuvah. Denise? So just thinking about the connection with Nach and Noach and regret and, and um, comfort and stuff. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's really cool. It reminds me of um, something Elizabeth Edwards wrote how we're sort of conditioned to never be wrong and we don't want to be wrong. We avoid it in like really elaborate ways, but it's actually very liberating to be wrong because then you can do something different. And if you're never wrong, you can never change. You're always stuck relying on other people to do things differently, which isn't likely to happen that often. And so um, like when you were talking about this, I thought, well, it is, it's, it's liberating, but it's also very comforting to know that you are not stuck and to know that you can do something different, that that regret can lead to something really positive. And it's also like, if you regret something, that means that you know you're better than that. If, if you're insisting that this had to be the way it had to be, like you're just keeping yourself in that place of doing whatever it is again and again and again. It don't, you know, but like, do you know what I'm trying to say? Very much so, and I, I love that comment, Denise, because, because you're right that it's actually evocative of a text I'm going to use in my Rosh Hashanah sermon, so spoiler alert, it's a commentary on the Mishnah by Rabbi Yisrael Lifshitz, who was a, German, a 19th century German rabbi, actually he was in Danzig, in Danzig, Gdansk, you know, one week it's Poland, one week it's German, and he's commenting on Ezehu Chacham Halomed Mikol Adam, who is wise, the one who learns from every person, from the Perkei and what he says is that that Mish, in that Mishnah, which has four, a series of four, you know, who is wise, who is a, who is a hero, who is happy, and I forgot what the fourth one is um, off the top of my head, that the prescriptions there are counterintuitive because normally the, the, our aspiration to be a certain way comes up against our instinct to do it in the exactly wrong way. So he says is that most people want to show themselves as wise. Because if they show themselves as not knowing enough, they're not going to be thought of as wise. 
But what that's, what's that going to lead to? It's going to lead to not asking questions and not um, apprenticing yourself to people who know things. And it's going to lead to the opposite of wisdom. So that's why who was wise, not the one who knows everything, the one who recognizes that every human being has someone to teach that person, that person's on the way to wisdom, right? So who is con- who, who who is going to be the good person? Not the one who says I've never done anything wrong, the person who thrills at contrition. I had to learn this lesson, we all do at some point. It was a very important rabbinic lesson to me because I don't know if you know this, occasionally, very rarely, members of a synagogue will complain to the rabbi. I mean, it, like, it happens once a decade. But e- every once in a while, when there's a full moon, um, y- you know, you, a congregant will tell you there's that's something wrong, right? Um, you know, when you're younger and early on in your career and you, and you think you're doing everything great, it's hard when you get accused or, 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 or berated, right? Now, I want to say this the right way, not overstate it. I don't love making mistakes, but I love the opportunity to be in a conversation with someone who lets me know where I have erred so I can do better the next time to that person or the person after that. And I train my mentors. I want you to thrill and push against the understandable defensiveness. And what does it mean to have a calm, non-defensive stance when someone says something to you about how disappointed you are and your first response is not, but wait, what I meant was your first response is tell me more. I want to know more. I'm, I, I'm, I'm curious. I want to know more about how I disappointed you in this moment. That is a pathway to learning and growth. So, so thank you for that comment, Denise. Let's push forward. And this is the last, um, last two chunks of the first halacha uh, of this section. And maybe we'll get to the second halacha as well. Actually, we're going to jump to the third. I'm not doing the second. Now, remember that the, that the Rambam, I told you that of, the, of all the medieval halachic works, he's the only one who writes a practicum, including for what life would have been like had the temple still stood, right? He's not, he's living a thousand years after the temple was destroyed, but he writes it as if it was still a manual for temple-based Judaism. Those who were obligated for a chet ap chata, the sin offering, ba'ashamot, the guilt offering, the eichem, maybe in korbonotehenj al-shi gatan, when they would have brought a sacrifice for an inadvertent um, um uh, omission of a commission of a sin, o al-zdonan, or had they a different, more severe sacrifice, had they been um, uh, guilty of doing something willfully, ain mit kaper, look at that word, Yom Kippur, they are not cleansed, another hit pa'el, another reflexive. Uh, the verb, we, we often translate lechaper as atonement, you know, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, kaf pesh resh, kaf pei resh, really means to clean out, to, to wipe clean. They are not wiped clean, the korbanan, even with their wonderful sacrifices, ad shi asu tshuva, until they actually do the tshuva, vidvadu vidui dvarim. And they say this vidui dvarim that I, the Rambam, already told you about in the previous paragraph, in the Amar, vidvada asher chata aleha, and the person um, should make a confessional on the sin upon which the person had already brought the sacrifice. So the Rambam says, you might think in the first paragraph, folks, that um, we invented tshuva because we can no longer get instant atonement for bringing a sacrifice. Uh-uh. Even in the era of sacrifice, so just so you know how significant tshuva is, if you brought a perfect sacrifice without blemish and done it exactly as it should have been, you do not get any kapara. Yom Kippur did not happen for you. 
unless you'd already done, also done the bidui in words. Um, let me read the next three lines and then I'll see whose hands are up. Even those who are obligated for capital punishment at the, at the hands of the court, for now we'll just gloss over the question as to whether or not you know, the Sanhedrin ever had the power, or even if they did have the power, ever executed someone for violating Shabbat. Let's think of it as a, um, as a theoretical exercise right now. And those who are obligated for lashes, even if you, you think, and I have to put this paragraph in, Capital punishment is a, obviously a very extreme thing, whether it's for a ritual law or a civic law. But the idea in the system is that you sinned a great sin, and by surrendering your life, your neshama is clean, meaning you achieve atonement. He, Rambam says, even if you were obligated for capital punishment and you were executed, or you were obligated for corpor- corporal punishment, corporal, corporeal, I always forget the word, and you were lashed, you have gotten no benefit from your death. Your soul gets no benefit from your righteous, deserved death, internal to the system, or your lashing. lashing. It's a very powerful thing for him to say. We believe in our rituals, but the rituals are only the thing that, that, that solemnize or concretize the work that you've already done. In other words, if we were to stop right here, which we're not going to, you want to come to Yom Kippur services and open a machsor and daven away? Wonderful. I can't wait to share that with you. Sing out loud and let's make it a powerful experience. It is nothing if you've not thought through the past year and gone specifically to the people you've harmed or to the God to to whom you've not been sufficiently devoted and said out loud what it is that you promise never to do again. Let's uh, pause. Whose hands are up? I can't see based on my screen. Oh, Denise and Barbara. Let's go, Barbara, because I haven't heard from you yet today. And then we'll go Denise and Teibel. Why, why does the Torah then include sin and guilt offerings or any other offerings if they don't really do anything, if you only can repent verbally? Yeah. Yeah, so it's an interesting symbiotic relationship. Our, 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 our rituals and the intent behind the rituals, and it's been an age-old, uh, not really a conflict, but tug of war in the tradition, right? There's a classic Mishnah in Masechet Brachot, where one of the sages say, if you don't say every one of the 18 blessings of the, of the Shemona Esra, you have in Davin. And the response to that is, if your prayers are not personal supplications, you have in Davin. So which is it? The answer is a fusion, right? So we as traditional Jews, right? Um, you know, you know, there's a lot, I, I'm, I'm a Jew across many spectrums, and I and I love the mindfulness approach to the tradition, and I love the parts of the, the Hasidic parts of the tradition that transcend individual words. But I also love the Sidur, and I love the Machsor. So we 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 do say that standing up and saying the entire Amidah is a significant part of presenting yourself as a Jew in that moment. And we would also say, if you were thinking about the game while you were saying those words, which you know guilty as charged, sometimes my mind goes there, and you weren't thinking about what those words were supposed to bring you to as a renewed human being. Yeah, you, you, they are necessary. Each of them are necessary, but insufficient criteria. They need to be both there. Now, some might say, like there's some who come from a part of the religious tradition who say the words were just to get you to the zone. So if you can achieve the zone anyway, you don't need the words. That's a, a, a less traditional approach, right? Um, and there are plenty of Jews who, who would um, stand behind that approach? Who don't say you have to be enslaved to the words that some rabbis wrote thousands of years ago? 
we in our community in general feel a devotion to both. Uh, Denise? My hand was up from before, sorry. Table. And I don't know where this would be, but my recollection is that when um, rabbis and scholars sometimes who are the same talk about the third temple and should it be restored, there's often a discussion that the Rambam said, even if the third temple were to be, there shouldn't be animal sacrifices. Yeah. So this is, I just wondered if you had any comments because if that's true, this certainly is consonant that the um, animal sacrifices would not be enough. However, he, he, uh, he's not tipping his hand today. And in fact, there is, you know, that we don't have this now because the temple's gone. And if the temple would even need to do this part. I missed a little of the last sentence because your audio was going out a little bit, but I think I got the thrust of it. You're, you're pointing out a wonderfully interesting paradox in Maimonidean thinking, as we've said now several times. He did not, he, he made his book twice as long as it had to be. It's a lot of work to include the practical, right? there are entire sections of the, of Mishnah Torah that talk about how to offer sacrifices. There's Hilchot Machin, the laws of kingship. There hadn't been a king for 2000 years, 2000, 2000 years since the Rambam. Uh, 1500 years since the Rambam lived, right? Um, so on the one hand, he is very committed to representing the entirety of the tradition, even the tradition that has become obsolete. On the other hand, he is famously known and in some ways has created a controversy in his time, right? We, we now laud the Rambam. The Rambam was not, the Rambam was not the Rambam necessarily in his era. There was, there's a, an era of Jewish intellectual history called the Maimonidean controversy where he was considered to be uh, a spiritual outlaw and involving himself in too much foreign thought like Aristotelian philosophy and having the audacity to say, I'm now modernizing his language, that the whole system of Corbonot was a, what's the, a transitional object, right? You know, think of a, a, a child's blankie, right? A child has a blankie so that he or she can have a transition from the breast to a sense of nourishing oneself independently, right? Yeah, that, that's Many have made that argument. The Rambam said the whole system of sacrifices in Bayikra in the Torah was there to wean the Israelites off of the notion of, of bringing sacrifices that were integral to a idolatrous system, but it was never God's um, expectation that it would last forever. It leads to all interesting questions about what it, what does that mean? Does that mean that the second temple being destroyed by the Romans was actually part of God's plan and in many parts of rabbinic literature, the answer is, is yes. And so the Rambam is, is, is on record basically saying, not, I, I mourn for the destruction of the temple and I fast on Tisha B'Av and I weep for those who were killed in that, in that era. And I do not necessarily ache for the rebuilding of the temple. And if it would be built, we wouldn't do sacrifices on it because we have evolved since then. And in this section, he is telegraphing this a little bit saying that even if the temple were to stand, it would not obviate you from doing the harder work of tshuva. It's rather easy to bring a sacrifice if you can afford a goat. And it's rather easy to come to shul and spend the two hours and say every word. It's not easy to let those words penetrate. Now that Rashi has spoken, uh, Rashi, the Rambam has spoken about those who are um, obligated to more severe sins, 
he brings it down to um, everyday interactions, and maybe with this will end. Also, someone who injures um, uh, a fellow. Chet bet lamed is an interesting root. Also, in the pa'al chovel means to injure. In modern Hebrew, a mechabel means to terrorize, and a chabel is a terrorist. Same root. Bahamazik mamono and uh, injures their money, meaning injures them financially. Af al Even if you paid them back, which is the interpersonal version of the sacrifice, right? The sacrifice is paying God back for your having taken something from God's realm by not following the law. Your restitution to your fellow is paying that person back for what you took from them, even if you paid them exactly what you took away. Mashahu chayablo. Ain't no mit kaper. Same roots. You have achieved no internal atonement. Until you say that confessional to that person. Don't just send a check in the mail. The Yashuv, and you return. Milasot, kazet leolam. You return from the, even the possibility of doing that very kind of thing again. Notice that both in the beginning and the end of still this first halakha of the laws of Shuva, he used the root, root Yashuv to return twice. He used it up here with when the person wants to do Shuva, they should return from their sin. And here, as he's finishing the first halakha, he says, you make the confession that you will return from doing the, that very thing forever. As it says, he's quoting from the fifth chapter of Bamidbar, this applies to any sin a person might do, not only those between you and God, but also between you, you and another. So um, let's end here. Next week, we'll jump um, into a, uh, we'll jump one halakha. We'll look in the uh, third halakha of the first chapter. You have access to the doc. If you want to look ahead, you can, but we'll go through it. And we'll look at some of the interest, some, we'll start looking at some commentary on the Mishnah Torah next week, and also some uh, rabbinic sources uh, upon which he built some of this halakhic infrastructure. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.